which will show you where we're up to. Matthew chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 15 to the end. And as we begin, I'll lead us in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you indeed that you have given us your Son. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. Thank you that you have given us your Spirit. Um, And we pray that uh, your Spirit will enable us uh, to appreciate that forgiveness more and more and to uh, put it into practice uh, in terms of forgiving others as well. Help us as we consider uh, this, your word. Uh, Please speak to us, teach us, rebuke us, encourage us, correct us, uh, that we may live holy lives that glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are all kinds of reasons why conflicts happen in churches. Sometimes there are good reasons. False teaching comes in and it must be opposed. Heresy threatens and it must be rooted out. And so conflict is necessary for the sake of love. So that people are not led astray. But there is also conflict in churches for other reasons. Personality clashes. Misunderstandings. Words said to or about another person which should never have been said. And we fight for all the wrong reasons. Reasons of personal offense. We feel that someone has sinned against us and so we go and speak about them. And cause troubles for them in the rest of the congregation. Or... We can do the opposite. And the opposite, although equally wrong way of dealing with these kind of problems, is withdrawal. We say to ourselves, so-and-so at church said this about me, so I'll ignore them when I see them at the gathering. Or, I'm going to church, but I'm not going to talk to anyone, because so-and-so said this. Or, I'm never going to go to that congregation again. The passage that we have before us this morning tells us what to do when someone in our congregation sins against us. Before we look it up, though, it's it's important to remember where we're up to in Matthew's Gospel. You may recall that last week, Tim took us through the first half of Matthew 18. And we saw there that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we have to become like little children, humble, dependent on Jesus. And being great in the kingdom is about being humble. And we saw that we're not meant to cause our brother or sister to stumble into sin. It would would be better to die a gruesome death than to cause someone else to sin. And we saw that God is not willing that anyone should be lost. Like a shepherd, he sees and saves those who have wandered away. and, And we should have that attitude as well. And Jesus now applies these lessons to to dealing with those who sin against us in the congregation of God's people. And in verses 15 to 17, he gives us the principles to apply when we're facing the situation. And before we go diving into it, though, we must be careful to notice what he's not talking about and what he is talking about, because we mustn't get confused and apply it in the wrong situations. Look at the beginning of verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, this is what you should do. All right? So the first thing you notice that the other person involved is your brother. That is, he or she is a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus. 
This is not telling you how to relate to non-Christians who sin against you. Now, it's, it's, it's telling you how to treat a brother. Now, there may be things here that we can learn, how we're to be at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us. We're told, we're told that in another part of the Scriptures. But this passage is specifically about you and your brother. It's about a sin involving two believers in Jesus, the King. Two people in his kingdom. Second, we notice that this brother sins. That is, what he does is wrong. And it can be shown to be wrong from the scriptures. It's not just that he does something you don't like. It's not just that he gets on your nerves, or he doesn't wear the odorant, or he's generally annoying. He actually sins. And the third thing is that this sin is against you. That is, it's a personal sin. It's a private sin. This is not a formula for dealing with open sins. We have other passages that deal with unrepentant open sins, like living in adultery. It's not a formula for dealing with sins that will lead to major public scandals. These must be dealt with publicly, especially if they involve church leaders. And there are passages that deal with that. And this is not a formula that deals with false teaching. There are many passages dealing with that as well. What we have here is a passage dealing with private sins against an individual. A sin that your brother has committed against you, and it's a problem between the two of you. It's a sin against you, not against someone else. Not a general sin, not a criminal case involving the law. No one else other than God is involved or needs to be. Your brother sins against you. Now we go on to see how Jesus teaches us to handle it. And there are four steps here. The first step is a private rebuke. Uh, And there are three important things in this step. We see in uh, verse 15, the first thing Jesus says, your brother sins against you, go. Go and show him his fault. That is, you take the initiative to fix the relationship. Whoever you are, you take the initiative to fix the relationship. Don't wait for him to come to you. You must make the effort to go. Sometimes when we've been hurt, that's not what we want to do, is it? Right? We just want to give our brother or sister the cold shoulder. I want to avoid them. I want to say, well, they're the one who did something bad to me. I will wait until they come and apologize. Jesus says, you go. You go first. Take the initiative. The second thing he says is show. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Or it's literally go and rebuke him. Or expose or demonstrate or convince or correct. That is, you go and you show him where he was wrong. Show him where he was ungodly. Show him how he hurt you. Tell him his fault. See, when Jesus says go, he doesn't mean go and apologize even though you're not in the wrong. He doesn't say pretend that you're at fault when you're not, just to keep the peace. Just go and show him his fault. Now, it goes without saying that we must do this in love, doesn't it? Uh, it goes without saying that we've got to do it in a way that wins him, not antagonizes him. It goes without saying that we're going to do it in a way that isn't an ungodly lashing out in anger, but doing it gently and humbly and lovingly. Because remember last week, we don't want to stumble him. 
We don't want to provoke him to sin, because that's worse than having a millstone put around your neck and being thrown into the sea. You don't want to speak arrogantly towards him, because remember last week, we're to be humble like dependent children, fully appreciative of the grace that God has given us. And you don't want to speak roughly to him, because remember last week, he's a sheep that has wandered off, and the loving shepherd wants him to come back. So you're not there to blow off steam. Not there to show how right you are. You're not actually there for yourself. You are there as a servant of the loving shepherd who seeks him. As the one who has sinned against, you're the best person to confront him about his sin. To help him. To restore him. That's the point of the exercise. It's the point of love. You go and show him his fault for his sake. And the third thing about this stage is that you're to go alone. Look at verse 15 again. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Just you and your brother. There's no need to to drag other people into it at this stage. There's no need to gossip about it. No need to badmouth him to the congregation. No need to write bad things about him on your blog. You go and rebuke him privately. Just between the two of you. So much trouble in our churches could be prevented right, if we did it this way, wouldn't it? Someone goes against, does sins against you, you tell him first in love and try and sort it out between the two of you. And Jesus says in verse 16, if, uh, end of verse 15, he says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And friends, that's the whole point of it. You want to win your brother over. Literally, you've gained your brother. You've brought back someone who's wandered into sin. You've corrected him. You've helped him. You've, you've built a relationship with him. You've won him over. And that's a good thing, isn't it? The goal of the whole exercise, to win your brother. And if he repents of his sin at this stage, then that's as far as it has to go. Although sometimes repentance may involve reparation and Depending on what the matter is, um, he may have to give himself up for prosecution, although I said this is not necessarily what this, 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 this thing is about. Or it simply may mean that he's asking you for forgiveness. Whatever it means, his goal is not reprisal, but to gain your brother. If both of you come to it in good faith, both of you are willing to hear the other person out, if both of you are trying to be loving and both of you are willing to be shown to be in the wrong and repent of it, then, that, brothers and sisters, that will settle most problems. In fact, nearly all the problems in the church can be dealt with at this stage. And there's no need to move on to the next one. However, not all disputes can be settled like this. You and your brother may see things differently, so, uh, so differently, in fact, that you can't be reconciled. Or it may be that he's simply being stubborn, or maybe you are. So you need to bring other people in to help you solve the issue. In verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which we read earlier, the New Old Testament gives a standard that one witness is not enough to convict someone of crime. 
you need two or three witnesses to make sure the person's not just making up stories to blackmail someone or get rid of them or revenge them or, you know, just be malicious. So Jesus says, if you can't work things out with your brother, bring two or three witnesses. Try and work it out together. Because not only are they going to be give further help, not only can they give a more objective perspective on the issue, they're going to be needed as witnesses in the next stage if this stage doesn't work out. Furthermore, they're adding weight to the process. It's one thing for your brother to fob you off, and it's quite another thing for him to do it with two or three witnesses. It adds weight for him, and adds weight for you. They can see if he's refusing to listen to you, if he's refusing to discuss the issue. They can also see if you're the one who's being unhelpful and, and, and not listening to him. And so in the second stage, we have two or three come with you, and you confront the sinning brother together. And hopefully it stops there. But what if he doesn't listen to them, even at this stage? What happens if he rejects their help? Well, then it's time to take it to the church, or or the congregation, the, the assembly, the gathering. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Ah, the stakes are getting higher here, aren't they? It's now become a public matter. Though still within the congregation of God's people, you have two or three witnesses who can back you up, that you've tried to resolve things with him, but he won't listen. He won't listen to you, he won't listen to the witnesses, and now you have to tell it to the congregation. And the congregation will tell him to repent. Or at least in the first place, ask him to engage with you and the witnesses. And if he does, then with the help of others, you have gained your brother. He's been brought to repentance, received correction, and he's saved. And remember, that's the whole point of the process, to correct and save a wandering brother. However, if he refused to even listen to the church, Jesus says at the end of verse 17, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is, if he will not listen to the congregation, then don't consider him part of the fellowship. Until he repents of his attitude, Jesus says, do not consider him to be one of your own people. Treat him as you would a tax collector or a pagan. Now, how do we treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, we're to reach out to them, aren't we? We're to love them, to seek them, to proclaim the gospel to them. But at the same time, we would not consider them one of us. That is, we would not consider them to be part of God's people. We'd love them, but we wouldn't involve them in any leadership role. We wouldn't give them a public role in our gatherings. We wouldn't allow them to join with us in the Lord's Supper. We would not treat them as Christians, but as unbelievers. And we call that excommunication. Jesus says, if you don't listen to the church, then you're to be treated as an unbeliever. Now, it's a last resort. Uh, if he will not listen to the church in the matter that he has wronged you, it works as a public warning to show the seriousness of sin, and not only the sin against you, but defiance of the congregation, 
It protects a congregation from people who are not interested in reconciliation and peace and is there to help your brother come to his senses and repent. Although hopefully he's done so way before we get to this stage. Hopefully this stage will be very, very, very rare indeed. But that's the process that Jesus has given us. Now, having outlined this three-stage process, Jesus tells his disciples what he told Peter alone back in chapter 16. Uh, if you look in verses, uh, verse 18 onwards, he gives a promise. Now, there's a change here that you can't see in the English Bible because uh, all the U's in verses 15 to 17 are, are singular and the ones in verse 18 onwards are plural. Right? So Jesus is moving beyond the hypothetical situation to a concrete situation talking to his disciples. He's speaking to the group of disciples gathered around him and he says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you, you guys, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Although the translation is better, will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. We saw a few weeks ago that, that Jesus gave Peter the same kind of promise, the same kind of reassurance when he gave him, made him responsible for the keys of the kingdom. And we saw at that stage that he would be responsible for allowing the Jews and then the Samaritans and the Gentiles to enter into the church. And he would use those keys and make decisions that God had already made. Jesus is speaking now to all the apostles. And he's speaking here about church discipline. So what does binding and loosing have to do with church discipline? Well, Jesus is reassuring his disciples that if they follow this four-step process in good faith, the decision they come to will be the decision that heaven has already made. As they lovingly and graciously seek to discipline, they'll be putting into action the discipline that God has already declared. And just like he would guide Peter, so too would he guide the other apostles so that the decisions they make would be the decisions that he had made. And so the church, that the gathering, that the congregation would mimic the heavenly reality to which it pointed. Now the next two verses continue that theme, verses 19 and 20. Again I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. We'll stick at verse 19 for now. Now, this isn't talking about prayer, is it? Uh, or agreeing in prayer to get something. I mean, lots of people misquote it that way, but, but look at the context. It's addressed to the apostles, and it's still talking about church discipline. And Jesus says to the disciples, if two of them agree about a matter, about a legal dispute, what they ask for will be done for them by God. That is, as the apostles act in this way, God will do what they ask. But what about us? Because we're not apostles. Now, what a right have we got in our congregation to be, to be doing things like this? What extent have we, the congregation, have been given authority to do church discipline? Well, verse 20 gives us the answer. Jesus says, For when two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. See, when the congregation meets in the name of Jesus, then he is with us. And when we say that we are out of fellowship with someone, having gone through all the due, pro due process in a loving 
and merciful way, looking for reconciliation, looking for peace, looking for forgiveness and all that, and it's still not going to come, then Jesus backs us up when we say we exclude the person. When we rightly excommunicate from the congregation, and I say rightly because we can wrongly do it, then he's the one who does it with us. That's what gives excommunication teeth. That's what gives terrible weight to what we do. He is with us as we obey him. He is with us as we discipline ourselves in our body. So Jesus says, if you have an offense with a fellow believer, try and deal with it privately. Only move up the escalating ladder if he doesn't repent. But what if he does repent? And then he does it again. Do we still forgive him? How many times has he got to do that before we say no? No more. Well, Peter asked that question in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Well, Peter's actually being quite generous there, isn't he? No? Forgiving someone seven times for the same offense, that's, that's pretty good. Other Jewish rabbis put the cap on three times. You know, three strikes and you're out. No more forgiveness for you. And that actually sounds pretty reasonable. But Jesus' answer is, is surprising. Verse 22, Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, we read about an evil man, Lamech, who seeks revenge. And his philosophy was payback. He would avenge himself 77 times for what he was wronged. And Jesus shows that he's the opposite. He doesn't advocate 77 times revenge, but 77 times forgiveness. Now, I don't think Jesus meant to take us literally. All right? You count to 77, ah, 78th time, no more forgiveness for you. All right? it's, he's saying, if your brother keeps on repenting and repenting and repenting, you keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. There's no limit to the forgiveness in the community of God's people. Because we are to forgive as God forgave us. And to illustrate this, he tells us a story. It's a story that's actually a warning for us. A story about a man who was in debt. Verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, the debt of this servant, in today's kind of figures, will be millions and millions of dollars. Right? It's not a debt that could be paid back by a lifetime of work as a servant. You couldn't even repay it by selling yourself and your whole family into slavery. It, somehow or other, this servant had chalked up a debt that was so big that it just wasn't possible for him to repay. And so he would face the consequences. Verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. But even then, he wouldn't. And so the servant begs for mercy. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The master didn't just give him more time, he gave him something even better. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, he cancelled the debt, and let him go. Well, what extraordinary generosity on the part of the master. Incredible. How extremely grateful that servant must have been, just to have his debt cancelled, just, just like that. So what did he do? Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii. It's a relatively small amount. A few months' wages could pay it off. And the servant became aggressive to his colleague. The second half of verse 28. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. The exact words that the first servant had used when his master demanded payment. But, verse 30, he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I mean, isn't that amazing? After being forgiven so much, the servant is unmerciful to another servant who owes him relatively little. In verse 31, the other, so when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy in your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. You see, the grace that was shown to the first servant, was withdrawn. Because he would not have grace on his, his fellow servant. And so he would have to pay his own debt. His forgiveness would be cancelled. It's a terrible thing. And Jesus warns us in verse 35, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, Forgiveness is not easy. No one, no one's pretending it is. But when your brother is at fault and he repents, then forgiveness is what is demanded of us. We have no choice in this matter. Forgiving doesn't automatically mean that we forget what was wrong. But it does mean we choose not to dwell on it. Forgiving doesn't mean that we're saying that what they did is okay. When God forgave us through Jesus, he didn't say that our sin was okay. Instead, he suffered and died to pay for it. For your sin, for my sin, for the sin of our repentant brother. Jesus suffered and died so that God could forgive you and me without saying that our sin's okay. And we can forgive our brothers and sisters without saying that their sin's okay either. But friends, forgiveness is costly. It was costly for God and it will be costly for us. Because sin is a serious thing. Sin is rightfully offensive to the infinite God. And, and since God is of infinite worth and not treating him properly is infinitely offensive and the just punishment for that would never be exhausted. If we were to bear our own sin, we could never finish paying for it. Like the servant in the story, we have a debt with no hope of paying back. 
but the God who was rightfully offended by our sin was the one who paid the price for us to be forgiven. It cost God the death of Jesus to bring his forgiveness to us. Jesus who bore our sin and our punishment when he died on the cross was the infinite God man, the, the one of infinite worth who died in our place to take our sins. And he was willing to pay the incredible price so that we could be forgiven. And if God was willing to pay that price for us, then there is nothing too big for us to do for him. And what God wants us to do for him, as his forgiven people, is to be like him and to forgive others who seek forgiveness from us. Not by saying it didn't happen. Not by pretending it's easy. Not by minimizing the consequences of what they've done. Forgiveness is costly. And it will cost us if we give it. Just like it costs God. But no matter how much it costs us, it pales into insignificance beside what God has done for us in Jesus. And so we have no choice. When we confront our brother... We are to do it to seek reconciliation. And when he listens to us, we must forgive him. Forgive as God has forgiven us. We mustn't nurse grudges. We mustn't go to stir up hatred. We mustn't harbor bitterness in our hearts. We are to see our brother's sin, our sister's sin, at the same place that we see our own, on the cross of Jesus, paid for by him. And if we refuse to do this, if we will not forgive our brother, then we forfeit the forgiveness that God has given us. If we refuse the forgiveness of the cross to our brother, the forgiveness of the cross will not apply to us either. If we insist that the repentant brother pays in full for his sin against us, then we insist that we pay in full for our sin against God. That's something that we can never do. And so if our brother sins against us, even if he does it over and again, if he repents over and again, we forgive him over and again. Before we close, let's say a couple more things about forgiveness. First of all, can I say again that it's not always easy? Well, you may not, well, we may not be able to deal with the issues that are in our hearts just, just like that. You know, it's not like turning off a switch. may not come instantly, but we must be committed to it. When our brother repents, we can forgive him in principle and be working, putting it into practice in our hearts with the help of God's Spirit and the encouragement and support of God's people. Not necessarily instant. And secondly, forgiveness does not necessarily mean that everything reverts back to exactly how it was before the offense. That is, sometimes knowing the sinfulness of the offender means that protective action is necessary. You may forgive someone, at the same time not put them in a place where they can be tempted to sin that way again. You may need to take action to protect yourself, to protect others, to protect him from temptation. And that would be a loving thing to do. Love does not always indulge the other person, but it does seek their good. And their good is not to sin again. 
Thirdly, forgiveness does not mean that people are not accountable to the law. There are times when offences are committed that are criminal offences and we can forgive them at a personal level but they still need to be dealt with legally. And part of repentance for them may be turning over to the right things to the proper authorities. But we've seen today, friends, that uh, Jesus instructed us as to how to deal with people in the congregation who have sinned against us. We've seen these instructions are given in the context of pastoral love, shepherds searching for lost sheep, instead of complaining about them and dragging them down and running them down in the congregation where to approach them. And we've seen the stepwise opportunities where to give them to repent. We've seen the command to forgive when they do. And we've seen the commitment to restoring the relationship that we must have. The escalating pressure that we and the witnesses and the church as a whole to place on them to do the right thing. And excommunication is a last resort. Though if anyone's following this process, excommunication really is a self-imposed exile, isn't it? And we've seen in all this that we're to act in love and forgiveness offering all the time. The goal is repentance and restoration of the other person. Just thought to think about as we go. How are we going to treat each other differently as a result of what we've read and, and discussed today? Are we going to serve each other by going up to the other person when they sin against us instead of starting up gossip? Will we approach them in a loving, servant-hearted way that, that longs for forgiveness and reconciliation? And when we're on the other end of this process, as we will be, are we going to let our brothers and sisters serve us by pointing out our sins? Will we be open and listening and caring and willing to repent when we've done wrong and get it, get it sorted out at that first step? Or will we rebuff the loving rebukes that we receive? Let's pray that we'll be a people who don't get into backbiting and gossip and, and doing bad things to each other, but to openly love and serve each other uh, in this humble way. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you enable us to um, be ready and willing to forgive those who have sinned against us um, when they repent and come for forgiveness. We pray that we'd be people who are willing to uh, make the effort uh, to rebuild relationship when it's broken uh, rather than uh, uh, bad-mouthing and and tearing down, or even just avoiding. Um, help us, Lord, so that our relationships would truly be relationships of love. Um, that in the midst of our own sinfulness, um, and the sinfulness of the rest of us in our congregation, uh, that we would be able to show your love and forgiveness to each other, that we be willing to accept a rebuke and correction from each other, um, all done in love, so that so that we indeed um, act as a community of your people, who are being changed together 
and to become more like Jesus. Please help us to serve each other um, in this way um, and be willing to be served in this way as well. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.